Well, good morning again, High Point. So good to be with you. Happy New Year. It's good to have you joining us on the first Sunday of the new year, 2022. Thank you for those that joined us in person, and thank you to those who have joined us online. As many of you know, I come from a sales and a marketing background, and although my job was never in the area of advertising, I have always been fascinated at the ways that companies go about marketing their goods and their services. In the old days, it was quite simple. You, you told about the product, its benefit, its value, and hopefully the masses would buy your product. But in recent years, often the commercials um, promoting a particular product don't have anything to do with the product at all. <laughs> Am I right? Uh, uh, it seems the purpose for advertising today is about getting people to remember the commercial by using humor and unusual situations. It kind of locks it into your brain and go, yeah, that was a funny commercial. I remember that. And, and they do so hoping that you just won't remember the funny commercial, but the company that sponsored the commercial that will then make you think about the product that they're selling. The upcoming Super Bowl is, a, is an incredible example of what I'm talking about. The commercials produced for that event are more about entertainment. They're designed to get people talking and hopefully about their product. And studies have shown that about 50% of the people that watch the Super Bowl don't watch it for the game. They watch it to see the commercials during the break. It's become, it's become quite a phenomenon. And so companies will spend huge amounts of money to get their name out there to a large audience of potential customers in order to market their goods and services. Now, believe me, my intention today is not to give you a class on marketing or advertising. The reason that I bring this up is because as I was reading Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is no doubt the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, and I realized it is within this famous script sermon that Jesus decides to tackle the greatest marketing challenge of the world. He has already amazed the crowds with the news that citizenship into God's kingdom is open to anybody who would sincerely seek it. And when you think about it, that alone is an incredible message because the very people who thought they were not good enough to get into heaven are now invited in through what Christ did on the cross. And it's not based upon their goodness. It's based upon his goodness. And Jesus wants this life-changing and this eternity-altering message to be communicated far beyond the crowd that was listening that particular day as he spoke that sermon on the mount. So he devised his own marketing strategy, if you will. He comes up with a way for people around the world to find out about him, to find out about the plan of salvation. But how in the world will he do that? How will he go about making this happen? Because when the masses hear that God has opened wide the doors to heaven, to his kingdom, and he's beckoning people to come inside, surely you think they would respond by droves, huh? They will, won't they? Well, if you've lived in this world long enough, you've come to realize that that's just not the way it is because we live in a sinful, fallen world full of jaded and skeptical people, and they live, for the most part, blinded to their sin. 
Generally, most people are not concerned in the slightest about their spiritual future or where it is that they're going to spend eternity. That's just a reality in our world today. So what kind of marketing plan do you offer people living in conditions and having mindsets like that? Well, let's look at part of his sermon. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we will be reading verses 13 through 16. This is where Jesus makes clear his marketing strategy. These verses will be up on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible, and you can follow along with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. These are Jesus' words here. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus was saying to his followers both that day and today in the 21st century, century you are my marketing strategy. I'm not going to buy an ad in the Red Bluff Daily News. I'm not going to buy a spot on the Fox Network or, or Newsweek Magazine or a 30-second ad during the Super Bowl. I'm not going to produce a late-night infomercial either. You're it. And I want you, my followers, to market my message to other people, people who are in your family, people who are in your neighborhoods, people who you work with, people who you go to school with, by being salt and light. That's the strategy. That's, he says, my marketing plan. Now, the reason for this subject matter today is because, as you can see up on our walls, we have new banners. We put a banner up every year, which is kind of our theme for the new year, for 2022. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And the reason that this is our theme for 2022 is because we have a tremendous opportunity that has been set before us. As men and women of God, during this most unusual time, in my opinion, in my history of life anyway, I believe that more than ever, we have a great opportunity to be salt and to be light to people who desperately need Christ Jesus. You see, we live in a culture of discontentment, a culture of disillusionment. And right about now, as people are entering into this new year, they are ripe to hear the good news of Jesus. Why? Because so much of what they have believed in, so much of what they have banked upon has failed them. So people are really searching for something real, something meaningful, something lasting in their lives, and they are opening up to different and greater possibilities than ever before. But many will not discover that pathway to those greater responsibilities without you and without me actively being salt and light in this flavorless and dark world. Now, salt and light to you 
might not sound like much of a strategy until you understand that Jesus was using them as very powerful metaphors. Because one thing that salt and light have in common is that they both have a radical influence on whatever comes into contact with them. And and, and within the context and the culture of of Jesus' day, you really got to also understand their high importance in that more primitive culture. The Bible contains numerous references to salt, and it is used often metaphorically to signify permanence and loyalty and fidelity and usefulness and value and purification. The New Testament, in the New Testament, salt was such an important item, it was even used for trade. It was used as currency. So understand, in that day, salt was much more valuable than we consider it today. And here are some great undeniable truths about salt. Salt makes people thirsty. Salt spices things up. Salt is a preservative, and salt enhances flavor. And our job as Christ followers is to live in such a way that makes people thirst for what we possess in Christ Jesus, to spice things up by refusing to follow the crowd and follow the status quo, for us to preserve righteousness and holiness in a world that lacks both of them, and for us to enhance flavor, the flavor of this dark, hostile, and uncaring world. But then Jesus talks about light, which is a phenomenon that remains the greatest mystery still of the physical universe. Scientists are still baffled by its properties, and they have yet to fathom all of light's characteristics. As you were taught in school, we know that light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second, and it is the only known constant in the universe. And of course, we know nothing can exist without light. But here are the greatest undeniable truths regarding light. Light illuminates. Light exposes. Light draws people to it. So Jesus was saying to them and us today, live the kind of life that will illuminate my truth to all people that will continually shine my compassion and my love into the dark and deep places of despair and that will attract people toward me because as he says, I am the light of life. What an incredible vote of confidence that our Lord would entrust the dissemination of his message to people like you and me. And yet, what a tremendous responsibility for every single one of us. And so what do we do? What exactly in 21st century terms does it mean for us to be salt and light? Because while Jesus was using salt and light as very positive metaphors, understand that both can have negative connotations to them as well. Think about it. If you get salt in a wound, it burns, it stings. It's not a pleasant experience or too much salt on your food makes you want to spit it out. 
And the intense glare of a much too bright light causes people to recoil, causes them to avert their eyes away from it. And so the problem is that, that some Christians, even though they may have good intentions in their attempts at being salt and light, are inadvertently repelling people from the kingdom of God instead of attracting them to the kingdom of God. One writer penned these words, the best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. The truth is, ladies and gentlemen, the only Jesus some people may ever see is in you and in me. So it is vitally important that we live our lives in such a way that the Jesus that they see within us, they find attractive. Now I am sure before becoming a Christian, many of you were spiritually skeptical because perhaps the Jesus that you saw in a Christian was not the Jesus that you expected to see. Well, that's a sad reality. So today, I wanna start off by sharing with you three types of Christians that repel others from faith in Christ Jesus. This is going to be the first part, the negative part of my sermon. But we've got to address this in order to make sure that we are marketing the message of Christ in an effective way. Because sometimes for us to be effective at something, you need to be aware of ways where we can be totally ineffective. But then I'm going to move to the positive part of the message by sharing with you three ways or, or, or three uh, ways that Christians literally draw the lost to faith in Jesus Christ. It can be done. It's done every day. My hope is that through these examples to show you how to shine your light in such a way that, that makes people desire what it is that you possess, that I possess in Christ Jesus, so that we can be effective marketers, if you will, of Jesus' love, of his mercy, most importantly, of his grace. But let me start by looking at the different types of people or Christians that repel people from faith in God. The first one is this, in your face Christians, I will never forget when I moved out of my parents' house right after high school graduation, I was living on my own a couple hours away in Lansing, Michigan. I went downtown near the Capitol for some work training when I came across a guy on the sidewalk who was screaming at the top of his lungs. I didn't know what he was screaming about until I got closer. When I did, here's this guy with Bible in hand Preaching, No, he was screaming a very loud, what we call a turn or a burn sermon. You know what those are. Accept Christ or die in hell, and it's not done in a very kind way. It's a very, very, very ugly kind of approach. Now, what was even more interesting about this is as, I, as, as people walked by, the man would approach them very closely, and he would do this in their face with, their, with his Bible. 
That's really attractive, isn't it? (laughs) Boy, I want to serve Jesus. How about you? And he systematically continued to scream until they left his little zone there on the street corner. And although I am certain that deep in this man's heart, he had the best intentions, he wanted to see people one to Christ Jesus. He wanted to warn people about hell and how to avoid it. But I remember thinking to myself so distinctly that day, if that is what sharing Christ is all about, well, you can count me out. I want absolutely nothing to do with that. And not seconds after leaving this preaching zone, one of his partners jams a track in my face. Same look. Read this track. Get saved. You need Jesus. Once again, I'm thinking to myself, would Jesus be going about this in this way? And the truth is he didn't and he wouldn't. If you read your encounters that Jesus had with people, this was not the way that he went about saving people. You see, we live in a hostile world and people are pressured on literally every front and they have problems, they have emotional problems, they have financial problems, they have relational problems, physical problems. Of course, their greatest problem is spiritual problems. You never know what a person is going through until you take time to talk to them. And although we clearly have the answer to their life's greatest struggles, it's how we relate to people that is so very important. Think about in times whenever you've gone out to buy a car or some kind of a high-ticket item. Did you ever buy from the bully, high-pressured salesman? If you did, you got a lot more patience than me. Most of the time you left and and you went home and you came back another time or you simply went to another dealership or, or another store because who needs that kind of pressure? Who needs that kind of confrontation? Who needs that kind of a negative experience? Let me show you what the Apostle Paul said regarding this in Colossians 4, 6. He says, let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 2, he writes, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another. Ladies and gentlemen, if we are to be salt, Let us not destroy our opportunities to share the good news by remembering this vital point. Jesus has called us to add flavor, not to overpower the moment. That's not what he called us to do. And if we are to be light, don't be the kind of light that blinds them to the love and the compassion and most importantly, the grace of our Lord and Savior. The second type of Christian that repels people from faith in God is holier than thou Christians. We've all run into them before. They can be smug and they're very self-righteous. They paint themselves as being much better than they really are, while at the same time painting the lost as the enemy. Instead of a person that is deserving of the love of Christ and deserving of salvation that only Christ can bring. 
They tend to have an us versus them mentality. And when they attempt to share their faith, they do so in such a way whereby they try to fulfill the role of the Holy Spirit. Instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to bring conviction upon someone, they are quite good at doing themselves. And instead of the message being all are welcome and God loves you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the message tends to be this. If you are good enough, you too can be a believer in Christ Jesus, the few, the proud, the Christians. They are the good guys in the white hats. And if you're lucky, they might even stoop down and feed you a crumb from their heavenly banquet table. Sadly, this is a real thing that exists within the body of Christ. The prophet Isaiah said this about those holier than thou's in Isaiah 65, five, and I love the way the living translation puts it. Yet they say to each other, don't come too close to me, too close or you will defile me. I am holier than you. These people are a stench in my nostrils, an acrid smell that never goes away. Acrid is defined as bitterly pungent and irritating to the eyes and nose. So if this is how God views them, can you imagine how the unsaved and unchurched view people like that? I can tell you in an even more negative light than that. So ladies and gentlemen, if we are called to be salt in this world with no flavor, let's not believe that ours has a better taste than everybody else's. And if we are called to be light, which we are, let us be the kind of light that does not repel others. Here's the third type of Christian that repels people from faith in God. Cosmetic Christians. I'm talking about Christians who have a skin deep form of spirituality. It looks pretty good on the outside, but it hasn't penetrated deep enough on the inside. I'm talking about those who profess to have a relationship with Christ, but it's not manifesting outwardly in the way they do things or the way they treat other people. It never trickles down into their character. It doesn't seem to improve their integrity. It's the businessman who continues to cheat his customers by cutting corners. It's the Christian employee who falsifies their, their time card. It's the politician who wraps himself in the Bible, but his voting record never aligns with what the word of God says. It's the person who sits in the cubicle next to you and has told you a million times how much they love Jesus and what a difference he has made in their life. And yet that person has never once stood up when a discussion went on at work about Christ. And, and you wonder, where did all that passion go? Jesus speaks of this kind of hypocrisy in Mark 7, 6. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In James 1.22, well, it tells us why this is the case when he writes this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, when we profess a belief in Christ Jesus, but it is only skin deep, when our hearts are not fully committed to him, we not only deceive other people, but we deceive ourselves as well. 
And we also continue to contribute to the disillusionment, disillusionment of an already cynical world. There's really nothing that repels people like the hypocrisy of cosmetic Christianity. And listen, I wanna just say, I am aware that we all fall short at times, including the man who stands before you today. I am aware that we still have a capacity to sin. But when we receive Jesus into our lives, we are given the spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit now indwells us. The Holy Spirit helps us and strengthens us in our weaknesses, and he gives us power to overcome our flesh. And we need to be careful at the kind of message that we send to this world when we profess faith in Christ, but continue to live like nothing has occurred internally in us at all. So if we are to be salt, let's be the salt that actually has some flavor to it. And if we are to be light, let's be the kind that penetrates not just the surface, but goes deep down inside of us for everyone to see, amen? Well, that's enough of the negativity. But those are some real reasons. Those are real reasons why people are repelled from having faith in Christ Jesus. We shoot ourselves in the foot as the body of Christ, not all of us. But unfortunately, it's the bad stories that people remember. They don't remember the good ones. Now I want to accentuate the positives. I want to talk about three ways to let your light shine that literally draws people to Christ. Ways in which you and I, as believers in the Lord, illuminate a pathway to God because what we profess aligns with how we live. First of all, I'm talking about Christians who live out their faith even when it costs them something. I read a story about a young man named Ron. He was a former gang member with a long criminal history who had accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. When most people have engaged in criminal activity like this young man, they show up in court, they have their attorneys try to exploit every loophole in the law to avoid the punishment that they deserve. Everybody looks for a way to cut a deal. They look for a way to hoodwink the jury, to beat the rap. They do anything but take responsibility for the crime that they committed. Well, Ron was a little different. Ron walked into the courthouse one day on his own. There had been a warrant out for his arrest for shooting someone in a rival gang. But the police had given up on searching for him years ago. So Ron goes into the courthouse and he turns himself in to face the music for what he has done. He spoke to a judge, he said, I'm guilty. I did it, I am responsible, I need to go to, if I need to go to prison, that's okay. You see, I've become a Christian, I'm a born, born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the right thing for me to do is to admit what I have done and ask for forgiveness. What I have done is wrong, your honor, and I'm sorry for my actions. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not cosmetic Christianity. When someone takes a costly step like that, you know that it is prompted from a faith that has radically transformed their character. This is the kind of thing that attracts people towards Christ. Because we live in wishy-washy times, we, we do. Our national motto 
might as well be take the easy way out. So when someone says, I am going to do something because it's the right thing to do and not because it is convenient or not because it's going to cost me something, well, that intrigues and even inspires other people. It causes others to respect them for the depth and character of their faith. It causes people to stop and, and think, what do I believe in? And is it worth sacrificing for? And they realize more than ever, when you are willing to pay a price, you must really believe in what it is that you're talking about. So if you want to know what Jesus means when he says to be salt and light, here's one answer. Live out your faith even when it costs you something. Because when you take your faith that seriously, others who are watching will begin to take it as seriously too. That might mean by paying a price for refusing to cut ethical corners at work. It might mean giving up overtime opportunities so that you can attend church. It might mean paying a price socially by speaking up about your faith in, in, in the midst of a group that is discussing moral issues or a conversation that is questioning Christianity. It might mean admitting to your boss that you've used supplies for personal use. You've abused your, your, your account that they give you to purchase things to do your job. Or you've abused your timesheet and then making restitution on those things. It might be as basic as swallowing your pride and asking someone to forgive you even when you did nothing wrong in order to restore a broken relationship. Those are all bright and salty steps for you and I to take because they're costly steps. In Luke 14, verse 28 through 29, Jesus talks about being his disciple and he uses a construction illustration when he says this, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and, it, and was not able to finish. He says that no one should or would attempt to do such a thing. No one would do this without sitting down and counting the cost first, lest he or she not be able to finish it. Jesus makes clear to us that there is a cost. There is a price, ladies and gentlemen, for following Christ. And those who are willing to pay that price are the most attractive to people who are the farthest away from him. You see, people are drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ whenever they see a real and unshakable and a lively faith that is lived out within you, that is seen in your attitude, that is seen in your actions. It is lived out and it is lively, especially when you are doing something that may cost you personally. Well, here's the second kind of Christian who shines, whose light shines in such a way to draw people to the cross of Christ. Christians who don't just tell others Jesus loves them, but are willing to show Jesus love through their actions. You know, my wife's life, my, my wife Lisa, her life was forever changed with her involvement with a Christian who she worked with, who just didn't speak words to her, but who showed Christ's love through her actions. At the time, Lisa was working at a reservation center 
for a major airline, and by her own admission, she was unhappy with her life, the direction that it was going. She believed that there had to be more to living than what she was experiencing. She also said that the environment at that workplace was pretty negative. It was loaded with heated conversations with topics that most generally always went into the gutter. But within that reservation center was a young lady who Lisa said never seemed to get caught up in the negativity. She never had a bad thing to say about anyone. And naturally, Lisa was intrigued. She wanted to know what it was that made this woman tick. So at an an opportune time, Lisa engaged this woman and she asked her, she said, why aren't you like the rest of the people here? What is it about you that makes you refrain from all the negative stuff that goes on around here? How do you stay so peaceful and so seemingly happy? Lisa had no idea the response she was going to get to those, she was going to receive from those questions. But Karen, which was her name, she befriended Lisa and she started in small ways to tell her about Jesus and what a difference that he had made in her life. Until finally she told Lisa one day, she said, in order for you to really understand, Lisa, what it is that I'm talking to you about, you need a Bible. She said, Lisa, I I want you to go home and I want you to read the book of John. And I think this will help you to understand what I live for and why I'm a Christian. And that evening, Lisa opened up the pages of that Bible. And for the first time in her life, she opened a Bible and prayed, God, if you are real, then you need to show me who you are. My wife didn't come down to an altar call. She had an altar call in her own apartment. That night, she went to her knees. She got about to the story of the woman at the well, and she broke down, and she got down on her knees, and she asked Jesus to be the Lord of her life, and the rest is history. And Karen continued to be an influence in Lisa's life through her early years of being a Christian. So do you realize how thankful I am for a young lady named Karen who shone the right kind of light in her workplace, she could have avoided Lisa. She could have been a one-hit wonder and said a few things about Jesus and then disappeared. But instead, she showed God's love in action towards someone who I might add desperately needed to see it in action. You see, words are cheap. Our words are cheap. Our words are cheap. And we speak cheap words all the time. And as believers, we literally need to be God's hand extended to a lost and dying world. If there's one thing we learn through the word of God is that love is an action word. James 2, 14 through 16 says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, Be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? If you want to be the salt and light that Jesus envisioned us to be, extend compassion to a neighbor, to a colleague, to a friend, to a stranger in need. When you encounter someone who is in need of help, just ask yourself what those bracelets used to say. What would Jesus do? Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty 
Roll up your sleeves, take on, take some of that grace that, that God has given you and pour it into you and start to pour it into the life of somebody else. Few things are as salt savory or as gently illuminating as a simple act of kindness done in the name of Jesus and done in love. Lastly, the kind of Christian whose light shines in a way that draws people to the cross of Christ is Christians who are real, even when no one is watching. My greatest example of this growing up was my own father. My dad was a cement contractor, and not only did he live his godly life in front of his family and in front of his church family, but he lived it out there in, the, in his public life. My dad had opportunity after opportunity to participate in unethical business practices with the general contractors that, that he worked for, who wanted to pay my father under the table, who asked him to falsify invoices, who asked him to list erroneous charges so that they could show a smaller profit on the work that they were doing. And you've gotta understand something. These general contractors gave my dad the largest portion of his business. They were his lifeblood in business. But my dad always drew the line in the sand, no matter what that line was. It spoke to his integrity. It spoke to his Christian character. And the beauty of that is this. My dad was the same whether someone was looking or whether someone was not. And that is what a cynical world is looking for. Christian people of integrity who exhibit Christ-likeness in every situation. 1 Peter 2.15 says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. I'm not trying to make you feel paranoid or anything this morning, but believe me when I tell you, people are watching you. If you've identified yourself as a Christian, if you've identified yourself with Christ, people are watching to see whether you are the real deal or not. You should try being a pastor. You live life in a fishbowl. Lisa and I go into places and I see people do this when we walk in. I don't know who they are, but they know who I am. And they watch. And if I have a bad experience at a business, when my flesh rises up and I really want to tell the owner, you need really to work on this, I hesitate to do those kinds of things when I'm just dying to say it because I'm no different than you. If I get poor customer service, I want to let an owner know about it because I've owned a small business before. I know what that's all about, but I know everybody's watching me. Now you, say, you may say, well, that's not being real. Well, in, in a sense, yes, but it, it, at least I don't say things that I will regret later. And it doesn't always work. Sometimes I will say what I think. But the point is, people are watching us. They are watching us in everything that we do. They want to see how you deal with the daily issues of life, how you handle conflict in your family and in your marriage, how you love and how you nurture your children. They want to see whether you are putting on your Christian happy face by pretending that you never have an angry word or you're worried or frustrated. They want to see if you tell the truth and if you come clean when you've made a mistake and if you're willing to ask for forgiveness. They want to see if you and I are, are honest 
about the little things that go on in our life. They want to see if and how we talk to other people, no matter where they fall on the socioeconomic level or whether they have something to give you in return or get nothing to give you in return. And if they watch long enough, guess what? They're going to find out that we're not perfect. We're not. But the beautiful thing about that is either are they. This shows people that you don't have to be perfect to be a Christian, just forgiven. You see, when people see you with a gentle acceptance or a gentle spirit of acceptance towards others, when they see a lot more humility than pride, when they see a lot more grace than haughtiness, when they see a willingness to admit when you're wrong, an anxiousness within you to reconcile when there is a conflict, a readiness to acknowledge the rough edges on your own character, but the sincere desire and effort to smooth those rough edges out, when they see that you're not a, a play actor, pretending that, you are, that the Christian life is always perfect, it's always smooth, when they see transparency within you, plus an honest hunger to get to know more about Christ and a sincere desire to walk closer to him every day, they know that you're the real deal. John 8, 12 says, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. It's that light of light, the, the, the light of life that draws people to Jesus Christ, church. And, and, and that should not only be our heartfelt desire to shine in such a way, but Jesus commands it in his sermon on the mount. Understand that your friends and others that that others you know have their hypocrisy antenna primed and it's searching. It's searching for you. So what are you going to show them? How are you going to live your life? What are you going to do to illuminate their lives? You see, being salt and light is, is nothing more than being real. It's nothing more than being honest. It's nothing more than being transparent and doing it in a loving way, in a Christ-like way. It's truly love that makes all of this work. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, one through three, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I, could remove, that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. See, lost people don't really care how long you have been serving the Lord. They don't care how much scripture you have memorized. They don't care if you speak in tongues or if you prophesy. They don't care that you are a fourth generation born again believer in Christ. They don't care that you have prayed over someone and that person was healed. They don't care that you can sing well or you can lead a crowd in worship. They don't care what kind of a great sermon you can preach. Let me tell you what people care about. 
They care when you sincerely care about them. Because when you love people, when you care about their well-being, you become light to them. You become salt to them. It's kind of funny to me when well-meaning Christians come across someone in need, they engage themselves in the process to begin with, but often when they count the cost of the situation, they retract. They pull away and they don't finish what they started. And then they call the church and they ask their pastor to finish what they started. That can be very appropriate in some cases, but in most cases, it is totally the wrong thing for you to do. Let me express this point to you. We all, every one of us, individually, are called to represent Jesus Christ out there in the world, not just within these four walls, because we are called to be salt and light to others. And, and by finishing what you started, you grow in continuing to be salt and light. So there comes a time when individually you need to bear this responsibility yourself. And truthfully, the impact that you will have on someone gets much more mileage when it is done by you versus when it's done by the institution, the church. When those situations unfold before you, this is when you have your greatest opportunity to shine. And truthfully, when you stick it out and you see it through yourself, you end up receiving the greatest blessing of all. You receive a greater blessing than how you just bless that person in whatever way you chose to bless them. You see, I believe that God drops people into our path every single day. We just refuse to see it. Sometimes we're oblivious to it. Sometimes we see it and we go, nope, not today. I'm in a hurry. But he does this to give you opportunities so that you can market the message of the cross. He knows exactly what you need in order to see you grow. And so I encourage you this morning to look for ways to be salt and light in this new year and watch as God uses you in greater ways than you ever thought possible. Be a part of winning someone to Christ this year. Because I'm telling you, when you do, it will be the most satisfying experience of your life. It will, it will trump everything else you've done. There is something incredibly special when you lead someone across that line and you lead them into a relationship with Christ. You don't save them. Jesus saves them. You are just the vehicle that brings them to the cross. And they take it from there. In closing, I just want to say, in closing my portion of the sermon, we're doing communion in a minute. Please understand that Jesus commands us to be salt and to be light. This isn't a suggestion. This is an expectation. He desires that we cast a pleasant light in this dark world. He wants us to fulfill our role as his marketing department. So the question really becomes, how bright do you want to shine? Do you want to be a 50-watt bulb? 60-watt bulb? Or do you want to be a spotlight? 
It's really up to you. God will shine as brightly through you as you allow him to shine. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. Let's purpose to walk our faith out in every situation, in every environment, with every person, with every encounter, and in a way that honors the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. Let's market Jesus' message to a world that desperately needs to hear it, not just by what we say, but more importantly, by what we do, how we live, how we, we love. Let's all, particularly during this new year, be salt and light. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up and join me again. Because on this first Sunday of the new year, we are going to take communion together. We're going to reflect on what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. So I'd like to also ask the ushers if they would come forward and help us distribute the communion to the crowd today. I believe one of the reasons that Jesus implemented the Lord's Supper, what we call communion today, was so that we are reminded of what he did for us. And through that reminding, we would have a grateful heart and that would motivate us after seeing what Christ did for us, that we would wanna be salt and light to this dark world in which we live. That we would want them to experience what we have experienced, the forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the living a new kind of life that, that, that so many people have yet to experience. When we take communion, we are acknowledging that Jesus' body was broken so that our body might be made whole. That by his stripes, we are healed. We also acknowledge that, this, that, that it is the shed blood of Jesus that, that cleanses us, that atones, that, that covers our sin and redeems us from the curse of death through eternal life in Christ Jesus. But this isn't just a time when we acknowledge, it's a time to remember. It is a time to celebrate. And it is something that we should never participate in casually. I say this every time, but it is true. The Bible offers us instructions on how to do this in a way that honors the Lord. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, it says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The scripture tells us not to participate in communion unworthily. It means that, that if anyone does so without recognizing the body and the blood of the Lord, it brings judgment upon themselves. And that makes you guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. But the scripture also instructs us to examine ourselves. When you examine, you just kind of lay yourself open and you, and you look at what's going on inside of you. You look at the condition of your heart. Is there unconfessed sin there? Is, is there? is there bitterness there? Is there unforgiveness deep inside? 
Have you turned away from God? Is he, is he kind of an afterthought to you? These are all the kinds of things that when it says examine yourself, you need to ask yourself. If so, if any of those things are true this morning, that can all be reconciled with our Lord. Because before we take communion, we are gonna have a moment of quiet prayer. And if you are here or watching online and you're a person who has never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can do so right now. You can receive salvation this first Sunday of the new year. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So a simple, pray a simple prayer and tell Jesus that you believe he is the son of God, that he is the only pathway to God the Father. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and to be the Lord of your life. The Bible says if you confess your sin, he is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If all of us would humble ourselves this morning and reach out to God in prayer, then we could all participate in this communion time together and do so in a worthy manner and not bring judgment upon ourselves. During this time of silent prayer, I want everyone in this place to pray to God in your own way and in your own words. Let's bow our heads in quiet prayer and meditation. Father, you have read our hearts. You've heard our words. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. Lord, I pray that the, may the joy from what you've done for us be outwardly seen in us as we become salt and light to this world and those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, later to be crucified, he had fun, one final meal with his disciples. It was a final lesson. It was a lesson of what was to become so that they would remember. And he took the bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it. And the breaking of the bread was symbolic of his body that would soon be broken. The Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And it goes on to say that by his stripes, we are healed. So when Jesus breaks the bread, he gives a piece to each one of his disciples. And he tells them, he says, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And he says, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So as you eat of the bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that was sacrificed for you and for me, and that by his stripes, he bore your healing. You may eat of the bread. Then he took the cup, which represented his blood that was soon to be spilled. And as I said earlier, it is this blood that atones, covers, forgives our sin, our trespasses.
And he tells him, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you do this, as often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. And as you drink of this juice this morning, I want you to remember the precious blood of Jesus that poured out of his body to cover your and my sin. You may drink the juice. Will you please stand with us as we sing? I just want to say that there is no greater time than now to take what you've heard this morning and become salt and light to those who are around you. You know, you're never going to win the world, but you can have a tremendous impact on those within your world. God never expected anyone to win the whole world. That was his job. Your job is to be an influence on those who surround you, those in your family, those you have friendships with, those who you work with, those who you come across on a regular basis. Because to be honest with you, the easiest way to share faith with someone is to share it with someone you know. Because you've already built a relationship with them. You don't have any barriers to tear down at that point in time. You just need to be honest. Do it in love and say, I care about you. I care about your eternal future. I love you and I wanna see you in heaven with me. And tell them about Jesus. And if, you, if you're not confident enough to to lead them in the sinner's prayer or tell them what it takes, then invite them to church with you. I think you know pretty much every Sunday people are given an opportunity to receive Christ at this place. That'll always be the way it is as long as I'm the pastor. I kind of feel like, why are we, we're just spinning our wheels if we're coming to church and we don't ask for a response time. Because the word of God demands a response. The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit triggers something inside of you, it demands a response. I mean, remember when you got saved? I don't know how it happened for you, but man, you can feel the Holy Spirit. He's pushing you, man. It is decision time. You've got to make a decision, and you do, and then your life is never the same. I just want us as a church this year to quit being so focused on us and the struggles we've been going through and COVID and the vaccination and our governor and politics and all the garbage that's going on that tends to beat us down and go, oh my, where are we going? 
And let's start to look at those who are lost. Let's look at those who, if Jesus were to come tomorrow, they're gonna spend eternity in hell. My prayer is that will trigger something inside of all of us, that if we know somebody who is not in Christ Jesus, that we would care enough to share his goodness with them. It's easier than you think. And some of you, I know you're, you're terrified. Every time you hear this kind of a sermon, you kind of tune out because you go, no, that's not me. Yeah, it is you. It is more you than it is anybody. Jesus wants to use you. And when he uses you, he will give you the confidence and the ability to do that which you fear. He will give you the ability and the words to say when you don't think you know what you're going to say. Just put yourself in that position and you'll see what I'm talking about. When it's all over, you'll go, man, that was amazing because that's the way he works. But he will not work if you won't give him the opportunity. Let's all win a person for Christ this year. Does that sound like a reasonable request? That's how you win a city. You win one, our church doubles in size. They win one, we triple in size. They win one, four times the growth. That's where exponential growth comes from. It's not about growing this church, making this church bigger, but it is because when this church is bigger, that means more people are serving the Lord. And that's what the church is for. We're here to lead people into the truth of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that you will take this seriously this year if you've never taken it seriously before. And will you do me a favor? When you win that loss one to Christ, will you let me know about it? Will you come up and talk to me, shoot me an email, make a phone call, leave a message for me? Let me know that you won someone to Christ. You have no idea how that encourages me as your pastor when I hear those kinds of stories. And like the song says, we overcome in the scripture, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That is a testimony. When you, when you take the time to tell me that, that is your testimony and it encourages you. Not only does it encourage me, but it encourages you. So thank you for listening to me this morning. And my prayer is that you will take these words that have been spoken today and you will apply them to your life. And we will be very serious this year. We will be very focused this year as a church on winning this community for Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the light that shines through us when we are in a relationship with you. My prayer is, Lord, that every one of us would accept this responsibility of being salt and light to this world and those around us, that we would go out and find an individual that we know needs Jesus desperately, and they would become our project, and we would continue to love and work with them, Father, until they make a commitment to serve you. Because God, I know when that happens once, it'll happen again and again and again. We've just got to experience it for the first time and feel the joy and the satisfaction that comes from us, from it, and we will continue to do so. God, help us to win this city for Jesus. That's why you sent me here. You told me there's a town in Northern California who desperately needs me, and you need to build a church of soul-winning people who will share the love of Christ with others, and that will bring them into the fold. Collectively, God, we can cause major damage to, to the devil. We can win this city and we can do it one soul at a time. So I pray that that will be our heart's cry. 
Father, let us not leave here today and forget what was spoken and tuck it away in our back pocket. But Father, I pray that these words will haunt them the remainder of this day, the remainder of this week, and the remainder of this year. Not haunt them, but push them to do what you've called us to do. And that is to be salt and light. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today.